Good morning. Happy birthday, America. All right. Could I have Herb and Sonny, could you guys stand real quick? So they are going next week to, and next weekend to a ministry trip to Lopez Island, which is, I had no idea where that was, but I, it's in the San Juan Islands. And they're going to go with a powerful team just to go and, and give away love and give away Jesus to people. And they're going to be um, praying for healing and seeing people get saved. So it's going to be great. If you're standing or sitting around them, could you just put your hands on them? just want to pray for them. Jesus, we thank you for Sonny and for Herb, God, as they go this next week just to give away your kingdom, God, that you would back up your word with signs, wonders, and miracles, God, that you'd set people free and bring salvation to many. We thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and for this opportunity that that, that island never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. How's everybody doing? Good. Two weeks ago, last time I spoke, something happened that day. I have a testimony that I wanted to share from that. Um, my brother came up here and began to pray for the Golden State Warriors to win the NBA championship. And I said nothing. I stood by silently. And uh, a miracle took place. Breakthrough and freedom happened for an entire region of the country. And LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers came back down 3-1 and won Game 7 to win the championship. I have been a LeBron James fan forever, and I will always be. And that was a great moment, best sports moment in my life. And I think it really happened because Aaron prayed for the Warriors. I really, I believe that. I mean, I don't know if you can track back with me. Every time he prayed for the Seahawks, they lost. Jordan Spieth chokes at the Masters. Steph Curry gets hurt in the playoffs, and the Warriors end up losing. Have you been praying for the Mariners lately? Because that would make a lot of sense. Anyway, so Aaron has learned not to pray. Hey, all of you Seahawks fans coming up this season, Aaron cannot pray for the Seahawks during church. If he begins to pray for the Seahawks, Chris is going to run up and tackle him and grab the microphone. He's going to go Earl Thomas on him and take the microphone away. Anyway, that was, that was just for fun. So had, I had to, you know, some people say I'm a bad winner. I don't know how that's possible. You should be given the right to celebrate victory and winning. Anyway. All right. We've been, we've been on a, a, in, a, in a season and on a series. Uh, last week we had our Belize team share, but before that for four weeks we talked about our mission, who we are as a church. Our mission is on earth as it is in heaven to bring the kingdom of heaven onto earth. We've been talking about our vision, which LJ just reminded us of, of inspire, love, and serve. We talked about our four core values. And uh, the first core value that Chris talked about about a month, almost, well, three weeks ago, four weeks ago now, was our number one core value of uh, the presence of God. And that's, a, you know, really what we are all about here at the Promise Churches. We're about His presence. We want to be a church known 
by the presence of God. We want people to come in here or be around us wherever we are and be able to sense, feel, and be changed by the presence of God. And so we, we did that series, and God just has been continuing to put his finger on things in our own lives, in, our, in this church, of we just cannot walk away from what God's speaking to us. And so today and then two weeks, the next two weeks after today, Chris is going to share more from that message that he did a couple weeks ago. And we're just going to keep going until God tells us to move to something else. So um, Chris talked about the presence of God and how the, the presence of God and salvation are, is a person, and his name is Jesus. And that through what Jesus did on the cross, which is the gospel of him dying in our place, raising from the dead, offering us new life in him to be a new creation in him, we have full access to the throne of grace. That God doesn't hinder us. He doesn't stop us. He doesn't hold things back from us. The devil can't stop us anymore. So what stops us from being fully like Jesus? What stops us from being all that God has created us to be and to do? What stops us? Well, it's us. And it's strongholds that we have in our life. And Chris is talking about that again just as in closing of worship. And, and strongholds are opened up in our lives through pain, through disappointment, through sin, whether that's sin that's committed against us or sin that we commit. And we, we gave you guys as a church an opportunity to meet with pastors, to, to confess things that God provides us a way of freedom. And it's through repentance and confession, renouncing and, and deliverance. And, and God wants us to be free. That scripture that Chris quoted where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, is very true. But really, if we were to translate it more accurately, it's where the spirit is Lord, there is freedom. So when, when the Holy Spirit is Lord in your life or in an area of your life, darkness has to go. And freedom can come in. If he's not Lord... If you're walking in pride and thinking that you can do it in your own strength or, or whatever it is, it, you, then you're not going to have the freedom that you really want. So he began to talk about that we gave you the opportunity. If you guys haven't had that opportunity to meet with someone, we want to do that still. If you didn't fill out the, the card and, and you, you thought you didn't need to and God's been putting his finger on things and you realize you need to, we're here. We want to meet with you. And we'll be getting to have more of those opportunities over the next few weeks. So. Just wanted to put that out there again remind us of that. Um, all of us, every single one of us, the day that we were born, and every person that's born into this, or into this world is born with an amazing potential. It's one of the most beautiful things about children, about babies, is this new person that is born into the world has endless and limitless potential to do amazing things. And God designed each one of us for relationship. He created us for relationship, but he also created us to do good works. As it says in Ephesians 2.10, that we are created in him. We are his workmanship created to do good works. And we are created to fulfill the potential that he envisioned, that he had in mind before we were even created. And what stops us? from walking that out? What stops you and I from reaching our full potential? Potential is a, is a mysterious thing. People gauge potential on a variety of levels and for a variety of reasons. I mean, I'm a sports fan. The NBA draft 
just happened a, a lot a week ago, and you have all these young guys coming into the league that are one year of college, a whole year, you know, one, two years, maybe out of high school, and, and they're, they're, they're marked by how much potential they have for, to have a career in basketball that was, is going to change a franchise. And, you know, guys are drafted higher or lower based upon the per- perceived amount of potential that they have. And, and the whole goal of that team, once that player is drafted, is to try their best to help that player reach their potential. And there's so much disappointment in players that never reach their potential. Greg Oden. Oh, Jesus, still bring healing here. And, and, and there's so much hurt and, and disappointment and frustration over players that never seem to, you know, to rise to their full potential. We've seen it in life, we've seen it in business, we've seen it in sports, we've seen it in family members and friends, where you see a person and you go, oh my goodness, they're so incredible, they're so amazing, they have so much potential, and it's like, what are they doing? Why are they not walking in their potential? Why are they not even scratching the surface of their potential? Or you see someone, whether it's in business or sports or life, family, whatever it is, and you go, oh my goodness, they have, they have maximized everything that they had and reached their fullest potential. What is the X factor? What is the difference in a person's life? What is the difference for you and me? Because God gave us all kinds of gifts, talents, abilities, creativity that makes us very unique and separate from one another. And, and he gave us those things to reach potential. And, and in, the, in the kingdom, in the, in the spiritual realm, we have potential to change the world. And God gave us those things to accompany and to partner with his presence. That if we try to do things from our own giftings, our own talents, from our own abilities and strengths, without partnering with his presence, we aren't going to reach our full potential. We're not even going to scratch the surface. And many of us as Christians aren't even scratching the surface yet of all that God has for us. We may think that we're partnering with the Holy Spirit. We may think that we know what that looks like or sounds like, but we haven't even really tapped into it. And one of the biggest aspects of fulfilling my potential, your potential, is how we host the presence of God, how we handle his presence, our value system for his presence, how we see it, how we view it, how we treat it. And really, again, that his presence is a person, and his name is Jesus or the Holy Spirit, really. And how we value the Holy Spirit, how we handle and host the Holy Spirit, and partner with him really determines if we will and how we walk out our potential. You see, you can't separate God from his presence. You can't separate it. People cry out, God, I want you. I want your presence. He shows up and they're scared and they run. Or they say, God, I want you. I want your presence. He shows up and they go, that's not what I thought it was supposed to be like. You need to stop this. You need to change this. This is making me uncomfortable. And really, you cannot separate him from his presence. You can't separate who God is, his names and his nature, from his works and his ways. People want deliverance, but they don't want the deliverer. People want the, 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 the deliverer, but don't want deliverance. People want healing, but not the healer. People want the healer, but not healing. You can't separate him from who he is and what he does. You can't. 
And so when you say, Jesus, I want you, and I want all of you, and one of the things we say here is, Jesus, you are free to be yourself here. What are we saying? Jesus, you are free to be your names, who you are, your nature. You are free to be you here. And when that happens, it can get messy. In the Old Testament, how many of you love the Old Testament in here? All right, that's good. I love the Old Testament. I like reading the Old Testament. I encourage you to do so. There's so many stories and examples and illustrations of you and me today in the Old Testament. Okay, the people of Israel are an amazing parallel to us as Christians, the church today. One of the pictures of the presence of God in the Old Testament is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was hammered out of solid gold, and it was basically the symbol of the presence or the throne of God for the people of Israel, for the nation of Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. It was made out of gold, which represents the divine nature. And it had, uh, on the top of it, was called the mercy seat, where it was in between two cherubim angels that pointed towards the middle. And every year, once a year, the high priest would come and put the blood of a spotless lamb on the top of, of the Ark of the Covenant, which where the mercy seat was, to, for God to forgive the nation of their sins. And this was a, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus. The mercy seat is a picture of Jesus. The high priest is a picture of Jesus. And the blood of the lamb is a picture of Jesus. It's just amazing how much of Jesus is in the Old Testament, just to let you know. Okay? So, so anyway, the, the blood represents atonement or redemption. And, and that mercy seat is redemption, is the, is the atonement. Okay? And then inside of the Ark of the Covenant, you had the Ten Commandments. You had a jar of manna, and you had Aaron's rod, the, the, uh, the buttered rod of the priest Aaron. And the, and the Ten Commandments represent the Word of God, okay? The manna also represents the Word of God as the rhema Word of God, the now, today Word. The, the, the Ten Commandments represent the logos, the written Word. And then the manna also represents provision, supernatural provision, that God is your provider, all right? And then the, the, the rod represents divine Choosing, God's divine selection, God's choosing of the priesthood. You and I are chosen to be priests. First Peter 2.9, we're chosen people, a royal priesthood, chosen by God. Okay? So the ark represents many different things to us, and there's many different aspects of it. And I want to go into some stories in the Old Testament where the Ark of the Covenant was used. Now, we don't have time to go into each chapter and read each story verbatim. I'm going to give you snapshots and condensed versions of these different stories because it's really important how we know how to handle His presence, how we host His presence. There's many different battles where the people of Israel would take the Ark of the Covenant into battle or to lead them into new places. The, the people of Israel had the ark lead them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land before they were to go take on Jericho. The ark of the covenant was carried by the priests around Jericho to bring victory and to conquer Jericho. All right? So there's many different of those stories. I've, I've been reading in the book of 1 Samuel for the last couple weeks, and we're going to talk a lot about it First 1 Samuel. I encourage you to read just to help you get a full picture of the story, because I don't have time to do that, read 1 Samuel 1 through at least chapter 7 or 8 this week if you have a chance, okay? Just to kind of help you bring a full grasp to what's happening in this story. 
In, in 1, Peter, or 1 Samuel chapter 2, it opens this up uh, after we, this, this book starts out with Hannah, who's a woman who is barren, crying out to God for a son. God hears her cry. She has a son. His name is Samuel. He's the great next prophet of the Lord. And the reigning high priest at the time, his name was Eli. Eli had two sons. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. And you should never name your child those names. That's not politically correct, but it's truth. So Hophni and Phinehas are, the son, are priests serving under their father, the high priest. And they, as it says in 1 Samuel 2.17, they had contempt for the presence of God. They had contempt for the ark of God. They had contempt for his offerings and his law. They showed that contempt by institutionalizing prostitution in the temple or in the, in the tabernacle. They took the best of the offerings that was reserved for the Lord, and they took it for themselves instead of giving it to God. Okay, these, this is what happened. And then the people of Israel are not living for God. They're living in sin. The Philistines, the Israelites' number one enemy at the time, come and attack them and to begin to go to war with the people of Israel. Israel goes out to fight a battle. They lose. They think, what are we going to do now? Hey, I have an idea. Let's bring out the Ark of the Covenant and have it lead us into battle. I remember how the Ark of the Covenant led the, the nation into the new promised land. I remember how it led them against Jericho. We should bring the Ark of the Covenant out, and it will lead us into, into battle, and we will have victory. In fact, they brought the Ark out, and the nation, the, the army sees it, and they begin to shout and, and to lift up a roar so loud that the ground shook, and the Philistines who were away heard it, and they were scared to death. They're like, oh my goodness, the God of the Israelites who destroyed Egypt is here and we're going to die. Instead, they said, instead of running away or surrendering at that moment, they said, hey guys, let's fight like men so that we don't become their slaves. So they do. They fought like men and destroyed the Israelites. 30,000 men died on the Israelite side. You might be saying, well, that doesn't make any sense. The Israelites should have won. They had the presence of God. They had the Ark of the Covenant going before them into battle. I don't understand how they could have lost. I'll get to that. So the Ark is lost in this battle. The Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. Hophni and Phinehas are killed in battle. Eli hears the, word of the, the report of the battle. He dies, falls, and breaks his neck. The Ark is now lost. The ark is placed in the Philistine god Dagon's temple. This is funny. They put it in there, and the next morning the priest of Dagon goes into the temple, and Dagon has fallen on his face before the ark of the covenant. They thought, hmm, that's interesting. Let's pick him back up and put him back in place. They do that. The next morning... They come into the temple, and the god Dagon's statue has fallen again, and this time his head and his arms broke off. The stupidity of humanity at times astounds me. <laughs> that you would continue to worship a god who fell before the ark of another god and think that you were serving the more powerful god. I, yeah, you know what, we do some stupid things sometimes too. So, um, they go, 
man, we can't keep this ark. It's destroying our people, the people who are getting tumors and all kinds of horrible things are happening to them. So we're like, we got to give this ark back to Israel. So they put it on a cart. It goes back to the nation of Israel. And the, this small town outside, on the outskirts of Israel receives the ark back. They're super happy. They do a huge party. They kill the ox that brought the, the ark to them. They have a big sacrifice, uh, a big celebration, thanking God for the return of the ark. And while the ark is in this town... Some men have this horrible idea to decide to see what's inside the ark. And they open the ark, and 70 men died from this town. And, and they're like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. So the ark, again, almost goes into hiding in Israel again. And it doesn't happen until King David comes on the scene. David has been anointed king. He becomes king over all of Judah and Israel now. And he's like, I need the ark back. I want the presence of God. We got to have the presence of God in its rightful place in Jerusalem. We got to go get it. Let's go find the ark. They find the ark. They put the ark on a cart and they're bringing it back. And they're, they're having all these, you know, amazing, this amazing time uh, worshiping God as the ark comes back. And all of a sudden, the, the oxen and the cart hit a bump or something, hit a rock, and the ark begins to slide on the cart, and this man named Uzzah puts his hand out to stop the ark from falling, and all of a sudden, poof, he dies. Man, isn't this story just super encouraging and uplifting? I love it. It's like, God, you sure you want me to tell these stories? Yes. Okay. So, he dies. David's depressed. He's discouraged. He doesn't understand what's going on. God, I'm trying to bring your presence back. I'm trying to bring your ark back and, and, and set up worship 24-7 and all these things. I'm trying to do this for you. Why did this happen? And David goes back into the Word and begins to see, oh, the ark is supposed to be carried on the backs or the shoulders of the priests. Oh, so he goes back. And this time, the priests, the Levites, carry the ark back to the city. And this is where David had his undignified moment dancing before the Lord in his linen ephod. And everyone thought he was crazy. And there's all these, you know, sacrifices along the way in this amazing atmosphere of worship, of honoring and valuing the presence of God. And the whole point of this story, of these stories, and especially of the one in Second Samuel 6.13, this is, Go read in 2 Samuel 6 as well, besides 1 Samuel. The whole point is that God's presence was always meant to be on and in his people. That we as his people were to be carriers of his presence. That, we, that the presence was always meant to be carried along by his priests. You're his priests. You're a chosen priesthood, a holy nation, chosen by God to carry his presence. I want to go back to each one of these stories that I've talked about and, and really provide a parallel for our lives of how we host and handle the presence of God. The first one, 1 Samuel 2, where it talks about Hophni and Phinehas, and it uses the word contempt. That word is, is, also means disdain or disregard, disrespect, dishonor. That's what contempt means. And they had a contempt for the presence of God. If you guys, I'm sure you've all heard of the statement, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. When we take for granted or become familiar with God's presence, we will use it for our own advantage and not for others. 
And we will do things thinking that we can get away with it, and it will destroy our lives. Familiarity. I want to talk about three different types of uh, different things involving contempt, and the first one is familiarity. Second Samuel, or excuse me, First Samuel four three, where it talks about the army bringing the ark to go into battle. What is that a picture of? What does that represent? That represents using the presence of God as an object of magic, as a formula, as your sugar daddy, as a God, give me all the good things in this life. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you and tell you that if you become a Christian, your life is going to be daisies and rainbows, peaches and cream, and everything's going to go easy and smooth for you, and you're going to have everything that you want in this life. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're going to go through trials and testings. You're going to get persecuted and ridiculed. Your friends and your family are going to disown you at times. You're going to lose good friends. People are going to mock you and make fun of you. People aren't going to understand you. They're going to stay at a distance from you. Being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus isn't easy. And a lot of people come to Jesus, and it's not always their fault. It's how it's presented, unfortunately. A lot of people come to Jesus to get their quick fix for their problems. A lot of people come to Jesus so that they can get blessed and have Mercedes and Ferraris and mansions and summer homes in Mexico or winter homes. You wouldn't want to go to Mexico in the summer. That's not what Christianity is all about. Using the presence of God, using God for your own advantage as an object of magic will destroy your life. Following a formula, a, a step-by-step principled formula, thinking that you're going to get God from that formula is just as wrong. There are principles in the Word that we need to live by, but if we don't know the prince of the principle, we're lost. We're not here to know principles and have good morals. We're here to know Him. And if we know Him, we will handle His presence properly. We will have a good value, a right value, a right understanding of his presence. We won't use it to have a wonderful life. God will bless you, and you will have a wonderful life. But that means you might be like Paul, beaten in prison and and shipwrecked and all these things. But when you get to heaven, you'll say, that was the best life I could have ever chosen for myself. Our American Christianity has turned the presence of God into a formula for a comfortable, easy life. And it's not true Christianity. 1 Samuel 6, 19, where the 70 men decide to open up the Ark of the Covenant to see what's inside. This represents dishonor and irreverence. It also represents how close can I get to the edge? How close can I get to the line without anything bad happening to me? How much sin can I allow into my life before bad things start happening to me? How much compromise can I make until I begin to reap what I sow? 
How much can I just tiptoe along this line just to get by and not really have to give my whole life to Jesus? An irreverence, a dishonor for the presence of God. And it will destroy you. Sin will destroy you. God's kids can sin. And it will destroy you. It will produce strongholds in your life that keep you bound. All the while you think that you are free. Because you know Jesus. God is holy and he is righteous. And he asks his people to be the same. We have to see sin for how it is. It's not appetizing and appealing, and it's not fun. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys churches. And the devil wants you to think that you can sin, and it's okay, because God's forgiving and loving and gracious. He is. But when we begin to take for granted his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy and his love, that's when we are not honoring his presence. That's when we're not valuing his presence. And that's when we begin to stop hosting his presence because his presence isn't really here. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is always with you. And if you're a believer, he is in you. But there's levels of manifestations of his presence that we haven't even begun to tap into because we haven't valued his presence the way he wants us to. In 2 Samuel 6-7, where Uzzah reached out his hand to stop the ark from sliding, what is that a picture of? What does that represent for the presence of God? That represents control or manhandling the presence of God. You cannot control his presence. The Holy Spirit is paralleled as the wind. Good, good luck grasping the wind and trying to control it. We cannot try to control the Holy Spirit. When we actually, if we really mean what we say, saying, Holy Spirit, have your way in this place, or Holy Spirit, have your way in me, we want you. We can't think that we know the best way. We can't think that we know how to manage that, or how to control that, or how to make that appealing and comfortable. Because often the Holy Spirit will test you and say, did you really mean what you said? Because if you really meant to, I'm going to do this, and it's not, you're not probably going to like it. Your flesh is really not going to like it. And so we cannot control or manage and manhandle God's presence. I said I would talk about two other types of contempt. The second, when I began to study that word contempt and, and look into it, there's another Old Testament story that immediately jumps up in all of your cross-references and all these different things, and it's the story out of Numbers chapter 14, where Moses had sent out 12 spies to go spy out the promised land. Joshua and Caleb were two of them, and then, then there was a bunch of other 10 not-so-smart people from each tribe. And they go into the land and spy out the land, and they come back with a report 
Joshua and Caleb come back with a good report saying the land is good. We can take it. It's God's. He's given it to us. But they come back with a cluster of grapes that they have to carry on a rod between two guys. I mean, tons of evidence of abundance and blessing from God. And they know that God's word has, promised, has been promised to them through their father Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way through that God was going to give them this land as their inheritance. And then these other ten spies say, no, the land is full of giants. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't take this land. They're going to destroy us. We can't do it. And Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb rip their clothes and begin to cry out saying, no, don't you remember what God's told us? Don't you remember how, what he's promised us? We can do this. We can take this land. And the people wanted to stone them. They wanted to kill them. And God was upset. Let's just put it that way. He wanted to destroy the whole nation and start over with just Moses and start over with his line. And Moses interceded for the people and said, no. What will the Egyptians say? What will the people who have heard what you, about what you did in Egypt? Don't do this. Please forgive us. And God said, I will forgive you, and I will forgive you, this nation, but I'm going to start over. A whole generation is going to have to die and wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the next generation can receive the inheritance, can walk into the promised land, can reach their potential. Why? And it says, how long, God said in Numbers 14, how long will this nation, this people, hold me in contempt and not believe me? What was their contempt? It was unbelief. Unbelief produces contempt. Unbelief, not believing the promises of God, not believing his word, not actually saying, believing I can be free. Not actually believing I can walk in freedom in my life. I can walk in all the potential that God created me for. I can walk in the miraculous. I can walk in healing. I can preach the gospel. I can see salvation. I can see families restored. I can do all these things. I can walk in abundance and provision and, and have lots of money. And it won't destroy me because I know I'm a vessel of generosity. I can walk in all these things and do all these things. Why? Because I believe God's word. I believe what he's promised me. I believe what he's prophesied over me. I believe in who I am as his son or as his daughter. When we don't believe, it's contempt. When we say, oh, that's just for some people. That's not for everyone. That's not for me. Or that's no longer for today. Or I don't really think that's what God's word says. Or whatever the excuse might be, you're listening to a lie from darkness. You're believing a lie more than you're believing God's truth. And that shows a disregard, a disdain, a contempt for God, for his presence, for his word, for his promises. And it doesn't make God very happy. The third contempt is in Romans chapter 2. This one's a little bit of a shorter passage, so I can read this one for you. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Right before chapter 2, Paul has been listing off a list of sins and, and horrible things of, that people in this world have participated in and are participating in. And he then addresses the people he's writing to now. He's beginning to address the Christians in the room, the, the people in the Rome that, that know God. And he addresses them in verse 1. He says, You, therefore, have no excuse. 
you who pass judgment on someone else for whatever you point you at what, forever, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. By judging others, by condemning others, we are showing contempt for the kindness and forgiveness of God, for his patience for our lives. Because we've so quickly forgotten all the sin and messed up stuff we were participating in or that we are participating in. And as Chris has said multiple times now, we as Christians should be known by what we love, not what we hate. The reason why so many people don't want to go to church or want to have anything to do with Christianity or anything to do with God is because they've seen Christians not live what they say that they are. And we know that we're not living what we say that we are, yet we pass judgment on those who we should not expect to do anything righteous. We forget what, where we came from. We forget what we got saved from. We forget what we've been forgiven from. And we condemn and we judge. We judge each other as, as believers. And we think that we're better than everybody else or better than someone else. I can't believe they struggle with that. Hello, what are you struggling with? And it is God's kindness that is to lead us to repentance. It is his love that is to draw us into his repentance. It is his mercy that brings sin to the surface in our lives. It's his love that does this. Why? So he can deal with it, so we can be set free, so that we can reach our potential. And instead, when, when someone's sin reaches the surface, when someone's mess reaches the surface, instead of loving them and showing mercy and kindness, we say, what is wrong with that person? How could they do that? And we need to be, we need to be merciful. We need to be gracious. We need to be loving. We need to show that kindness because that kindness will bring them to repentance. Who does God show kindness through? Us. There's an echo in here. He shows his kindness directly to us too, but often he uses those who bear his name to show that kindness. See, we have changed the name of love in this culture to tolerance. We say love wins. You're right. Love wins. I believe that because love won when God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for us so that he could take our place so that we could no longer be bound in sin but live in righteousness. That is love winning. Love has won. We don't change the name of love to tolerance and acceptance to accept people's sinful lifestyles so that they don't feel judged. Every person that was bound in sin that was around Jesus did not leave the same way. 
Where would Jesus hang out today, people might ask? Would he hang out in the pubs and the bars? Would he hang out with the homosexuals? Would he hang out with the lost and the prostitutes? Well, yes, he would. Because he did that when he was here. But Mary, the prostitute, Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, when he, she came to Jesus and hung around Jesus, she did not leave Mary, the prostitute. Jesus cast seven demons out of her, and she became Mary, one of his disciples. Matthew, the tax collector, who had integrity issues and cheated people, he did not leave Matthew, the tax collector. He left Matthew, the disciple, an apostle who wrote one of the Gospels. When people encounter authentic love, they will change. Love changes. It does not tolerate sin. So we show contempt through familiarity. The, the city of Nazareth wasn't even allowed to witness many miracles of Jesus because they became familiar with him thinking that they knew who he was. They missed out. Familiarity breeds contempt. We show contempt through unbelief, not really believing in God's word or his promises for us. We show contempt for his presence through being judgmental and critical and putting people down. It says in Philippians chapter 2, in humility value others above yourselves. Consider yourselves, as it says in Romans, consider yourselves with sober judgment. View yourselves soberly. Don't think too highly of yourself. In James it says, humble yourselves and God will lift you up. I want to read a couple scriptures. We're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. We're talking about God's presence. The Ark represented His presence. If we take for granted His presence, what else are we taking for granted? We're taking for granted His divine nature that's represented in the Ark, the gold. When we begin to do things that we're, are, are against, are contrary to the new nature that we carry, the divine nature that we're participants of, as it says in 2 Peter, we are taking... His presence familiar. We're taking it for granted. We're showing contempt for the presence of God. When we live lives that are contrary to His Word and His, His presence, we show contempt for the mercy seat. We show contempt for redemption of what Jesus did for us when He paid us the price on the cross for us. We show contempt for God's Word. We show contempt for his provision, all the blessings and all the things that he's given us. We show contempt for him choosing us. This is what happens when we, when we take his presence for granted, when we take it too light, when we don't value his presence the way he wants us to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Who is in you? Whom you received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The Ark of the Covenant no longer represents the presence of God today. God's presence is to be represented by you and me. We're the carriers of his presence. His presence was meant to be on and in his people, not in a box. Do you know what you have? Do you know what you carry? Do you know what God's given you? 
Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. The, the, what the world is wanting, what the world is needing, what the world is hoping for is you being a carrier of Christ. Christ in you, changing the world. That's what we are. That's what we have. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. And this beggar that's been lame for 40 years is sitting there. And they, he's asking for money. And they come to him and they say, we don't, silver and gold we don't have. We don't got any money. But what we have, do you know what you have? I'm, wanting to, I'm asking God every day, show me what I have. Reveal to me more of what you've given me. Reveal to me more of what it means to be a participant in the divine nature, to, to have you inside of me, to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And they gave the man what they had because they knew what they had. And that man was healed. And 2,000 people got saved from that miracle. I want to read one last scripture for you. And it's not an ooey-gooey, make-you-feel-good scripture. It's in the book of James. As Chris would like to say, why James, Lord? Why James? No, where's James Durkee? Is he here today? No offense to you, James. We love you. James chapter 4, verse 1, starting in verse 1. I'll wait a moment so you can click there or turn there. Tap there. Just read the Bible. doesn't matter, if it, I guess, if it glows anymore, Casey. It doesn't really matter. James chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 8 and then skip down to verse 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You might ask yourself, or remind yourself, who's James talking to here? He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. God is not a genie in a bottle with three wishes. That's back to that 1 Samuel, which one was it? 1 Samuel 6, no, 1 Samuel 4, using the Ark of the Covenant, using God's presence as an object of magic to get something for yourself. Why don't you have what you want? Because you have wrong motives. God doesn't want to give you what you're asking for because if he did, it would destroy you. He loves you too much. You may be mad at God going, God, why haven't you given me what I've been asking for? I've prayed for this. I've prayed for this for years. Why am I not getting it? Because your heart is not in the right place. You're asking with the wrong motives. If you got it, you, it would destroy you. Do you trust him? Do you trust his timing? Do you, are you really surrendering yourself to him? Verse 4. You adulterous people. Isn't that just so kind and politically correct? Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. He's not saying that people who are in the world are your enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. Okay? You're in the world, but you're not of it. He's talking about the world's system. It's ideologies, it's philosophies, it's, it's 
atmosphere of darkness. We're called to reach the world. We're called to love the world. We're called to impact the world. But we can't be like it. Chris said a couple weeks ago, or last week, I can't remember, we can't expect to change the world if we're just like them. They want something different than what they are. Verse 5, or do you think Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to dwell in us envies intensely? Again, an awareness, a greater awareness of God's presence, that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, lives inside of you. But He gives us more grace. Thank God. For his grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we recognize our weakness, when we recognize our faults, when we recognize our brokenness, and we recognize how dependent we really are on God and how dependent we really need to be on Him, God will come and give grace. Grace, the supernatural empowerment to do what you cannot do on your own. Pride tells you that you can do it in your own strength. And humility puts you in a place where you can no longer do that, but you have to have his grace. As Chris has said many times, if Jesus woke up, you woke up in the morning, Jesus is standing at the foot of your bed. You would not go out throughout your day with Jesus telling Jesus, time out, I got to go sin. You wouldn't wonder or worry about sinning that day. You wouldn't wake up going, oh my goodness, I hope I don't sin today. I have Jesus with me. You would just be enamored with Jesus. You would just go and do Jesus stuff with him. Every day we wake up. If we have a relationship with Jesus, every day we wake up, we have Jesus in us, with us, on us, going to work with us, hanging out with our families with us, watching movies with us. Everywhere we go, everything that we're doing, and we have to value his presence. I think if we even began to value his presence the way he values us, there would be a dramatic shift in our lives. Because he saw such value in you that he was willing to come and become a man and die for you. And salvation is not free. What Jesus did for you and the grace and the gift of salvation that he offers you is free. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to buy it. He gives it to you freely, but when you receive it, it costs you everything. It costs you everything. That's that part of that American Christianity that's like, God is not going to be your sugar daddy. It costs you everything. I think we win in the exchange. We get him for our old man. That's pretty good. Let's all stand.
I don't know about you, but I'm convicted. <laughs> I said, God, I really don't want to preach this message this Sunday because I'm convicted. And he's like, perfect. <laughs> if you weren't convicted, Jonathan, you probably would be in pride and you would need to get some help. I don't really know what to really do in this moment, but I just want to open this front area up, this, this altar, uh, so to, you know, if you want to call it, to, to anyone here today. If you just feel like you need to respond to this word today. It could be one person. It could be a bunch of you. It doesn't really matter. I just, if you feel like, man, I want to value, I want to host God's presence in a, in a greater way, in a better way. I, I have been walking in contempt, whether it's in familiarity, whether it's in unbelief, whether it's in judgment, being judgmental to others, whether you, you, you've been viewing God's presence as a genie in a bottle to get what you want out of it. You've been um, trying to tiptoe the line and see how close you can get to compromise and get to sin and not actually think it's going to burn you or affect you. If you've been trying to control and manage God and His presence and manage the Holy Spirit, God, we repent. We repent, Lord. We repent for not valuing Your presence the way that You ask us to. We repent for taking You for granted. We repent for taking the divine nature, Your grace and Your mercy and Your forgiveness for granted. We repent, God. Forgive us. Please, Lord, forgive us. If you're struggling with habitual sin, you need to go and, and meet with someone. You need to confess to someone. You need to get prayer for deliverance. Because as we, if we continue to do the same things over and over again that are sin, we are taking God's grace and forgiveness for granted. So I just want to read this one more time to allow you to let this just sit on your hearts this week, going into what we're going to talk about next week. And in James 4, 7, it says, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I'm going to read it again. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Say me. If you're not doing a good job resisting the devil, you might have some devil that needs to be fleeing from you. You need to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now then it says, come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Now He's speaking to Christians, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. They're Again, uh, this, this can be heavy, but you've you got to catch this. Sometimes you've got to sit with your sin. Catch this. Sometimes you've got to recognize that you have sin to get free from it. Oftentimes we're so quick to repent and then not sit with it and realize where we come from. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. This is what, we, this is what happened right after worship. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. just wanted to read that and pull out those few couple points that we need to resist the enemy, 
submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and the devil will flee from you. Come on, catch that. God is just unfolding the Word today in a big way. Jonathan's message was tremendous. Just tremendous. Thank you, God, for your Word. Thank you, God, for your servant, Jonathan. Pastor Jonathan, who brought that Word with such boldness and clarity. Holy Spirit, we just take a moment to submit our lives to you. And today we're going to stand up and we're going to resist the enemy. And he's going to flee. He's going to flee. And as we humble ourselves and sit with, with our sin uh, and, and remember where we came from and what we've even done this week, Holy Spirit, you will lift us up. We stand on that promise this morning that you're going you're gonna to lead us into new victory and new places in you. Father, we thank you again for your mercy and your grace and your kindness. We just ask that you would, Holy Spirit, you would just rest on every person in this room today and, and show them that this is not a heavy word to bring condemnation and shame, but a word to bring freedom and life. Amen.